Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I think I've been turned on. There we go, loud and clear. It's great to see you all. Full house. Um, It's lovely to see you. Um, Just to say that Nick um, has gone to the cricket today. I'd like to say it was something spiritual, but um, he's gone off to the cricket. He told me that it was booked for yesterday. And so, yeah, absolutely fine, going on a Saturday to watch the cricket. And then about two weeks ago, ten days ago, he looked in his diary and, oh, it's actually Sunday. Um, So I did, being a really supportive wife, went, I'll stand in for you. I know you're speaking, I'll stand in for you. And felt quite calm about it until I read the passage. (laughs) And and since then, um, I've done a little bit of whinging and moaning because I think I've actually got a really tough passage this morning. But I have read it and read it and read it. And I am not a scholar. Some of you will have worked that out already. Um, I I don't really know what exegesis and hermeneutics means. I'm just putting it out there. Um, But um, what I do know, what I do know is that every part of Scripture is God-breathed. And I do know that it is useful one way or another. And I know that it is really good at showing truth and exposing my rebellion and correcting my mistakes. I know that it is training for me to live God's way Through his word, he puts me together. So what I have done this last 10 days when the, I'm going to say it, the message was dumped on me. Um, (laughs) I have read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And you know what? I'm actually just a little bit excited about what I've discovered for myself. And the way I've gone about it is, I'm not good at Greek or Hebrew or any language for that matter, but what I did was I imagined myself in a room completely on my own, with my Bible taken away and my Christian music and my faithful friends, all the anchors that I have, all of them away, and I'm completely on my own, except for this passage. And I asked the Holy Spirit to show me what he wants me to glean from this today. And I just, all I'm going to do is just share what I've discovered. And I really pray that it will bless you this morning. So I am going to read it because otherwise it's just going to, what I'm saying is just going to sound like gobbledygook. So I'm going to read from the message and it's Romans chapter 11, verse 1 to 24. Yesterday when I looked on the program of the messages, I realized that the title for the message is The Kindness and Sternness of God. (laughs) I didn't know that until yesterday, so we'll just... We'll park that. (laughs) But I'm sure the kindness and sternness of God will come out. But yeah, sorry. Um, Okay, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. I'm going to read it really quickly in the message. Does this mean, Paul says then, that God is so fed up with Israel that he'll have nothing more to do with them? Hardly. Remember that I, the one writing these very things, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, one of the tribe of Benjamin. You can't get more Semitic than that. So we're not talking about repudiation. God has been too long involved with Israel, has too much invested to simply wash his hands of them. Do you remember? That time, Elijah was agonizing over this same Israel and cried it in prayer, God, They murdered your prophets, they trashed your altars, and I am the only one left, and now they're after me. And do you remember God's answer? I still have 7,000 who haven't quit, 7,000 who are loyal to the finish. It's the same today. There's a fiercely loyal minority still, not many perhaps, but probably more than you think. 
probably more than you think. Isn't that great? They're holding on, not because of what they think they're going to get out of it, but because they're convinced of God's grace and purpose in choosing them. Hallelujah. If they were only thinking of their own immediate self-interest, they would have been gone long ago. And then what? Well, when Israel tried to be right with God on her own, pursuing her own self-interest, she didn't succeed. The chosen ones of God were those who let God pursue his interest in them and as a result have received his stamp of legitimacy. The self-interest Israel became thick-skinned towards God. Moses and Isaiah both commented on this. Fed up with their quarrelsome, self-centered ways, God blurred their eyes and dulled their ears, shut them in on themselves in a hall of mirrors and they're there to this day. I'm going to miss out a little bit there because we're running out of time. The next question is, are they down for the count? Are they out of this for good? And the answer is clearly no. Ironically, when they walked out, they left the door wide open and the outsiders, that's you and me, walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews were starting to wonder if perhaps they had walked out on a good thing. Now, if their leaving triggered this worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders, you and me, to God's kingdom... Just imagine the effect of their coming, what a homecoming that would be. But I don't want to go on about them. It's you, the outsiders, that I'm concerned with now. Because my personal assignment is focused on the so-called outsiders. I make as much of this as I can when I'm among my Israelite king, the so-called insiders. Hoping they'll realize what they're missing and want to get in on what God is doing. If their falling out initiated this worldwide coming together, their recovery is going to set off something even better, mass homecoming. If the first thing the Jews did, even though it was wrong for them, turned out for your good, just think what's going to happen when they get it right. This is the bit I love. Behind and underneath all of this, there is a holy, God-planted, God-tended root. If the primary root of the tree is holy, there's bound to be some holy fruit. Some of the trees, yes, the branches have been pruned. And you wild olive shoots were grafted in. I've never been called one of those before, a wild olive shoot. I quite like it, especially as we've been grafted in. Yet the fact that you are now fed by that rich and holy root gives you no cause to gloat over the pruned branches. Remember, you aren't feeding the root. The root is feeding you. It's certainly possible to say other branches were pruned so that I could be grafted in well and good. But they were pruned because they were dead wood, no longer connected by belief and commitment to the root. The only reason you're on the tree, the only reason you're on the tree is because your graft took when you believed. And because you're connected to that belief-nurturing root, that's why you grow. So don't get cocky and strut your branch, whatever that looks like. Be humbly mindful of the root that keeps you live and green. If God didn't think twice about taking pruning shears to the natural branches, why would he hesitate over you? He wouldn't give it a second thought. Make sure you stay alert to these qualities of gentle kindness and ruthless severity that exist side by side in God. Ruthless with the deadwood and gentle with the grafted shoot. Don't presume on this gentleness. The moment you become deadwood, it's game over.
And don't get too feeling superior to those pruned branches down on the ground. I love this. If they don't persist in remaining deadwood, they could very well get grafted back in. God can do that. He can perform miracle grafts. Why? If he could graft you in, branches cut from a tree out in the wild into an orchard tree, he can certainly do that. He has certainly no trouble in doing that, grafting branches back into the tree that grew there in the first place. Just be glad you're in the tree and hope for the best of others. Amen. Amen. I heard yesterday that when Chris Simpson spoke, he had three verses. Is that right, Chris? (laughs) I'm sure it's rigged. My first point, and I've got four, but I've put two of those into one, so I've actually only got three, so it'll be a bit like four. Paul asked the question, is God so fed up with Israel that we will, he will have nothing more to do with them? This is actually a rhetorical question. Paul isn't actually expecting an answer. He's just highlighting the point that Israel have had this continuous problem of rejecting the message of grace. Complaining against God, disobeying him, refusing him. And God actually gets to the point, does God actually get to the point where he says, frankly, I've had enough. I wash my hands of you. Now, I don't know about you, but in my insecure moments, and I do get them, I can imagine people get fed up with me. (laughs) Thanks. I know it's not true. (laughs) I can imagine in my insecure moments, and I'm not the only person in this room, live with our insecurities that can lead us to think that maybe people might get fed up with us. And in my weak moments, I can imagine that God himself gets fed up with me, mainly because it seems that the same thing that I get wrong, I seem to get it wrong time and time and time and time again. I am a firm believer that the enemy doesn't bring anything new to me. He just repeats the same old stuff that he knows gets me every single time. And every time I fall or every time I fail or every time I'm inadequate in those areas, I can heap this great big mound of guilt upon myself and imagine God this time must be fed up with me. How many times, Erica, do we still have to go around the mulberry bush over and over and over again about the same issues? And I have to be honest, I might not have used those exact words, but I have asked the question to God, surely by now... You are fed up with me. But I love Paul's answer. He says this, God has been too long involved with Israel. So I've just put my name there. God has been too long involved, Erica, with you. He has invested too much in you to simply wash his hands of you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sometimes when I feel like I've got nothing to wear, I do this thing in our house, not in the house because everybody else would get really cross with me, but in my room, I open the cupboards and then I start picking out what I'm going to wear and then I do this and I pull it out all over the floor and, uh, and I know when I get to that stage, I have gone beyond the point of no return because I know that I'm never going to make it to bed that night. I'm going to have to sort out the mess, which is that cupboard. Are you following me? Yeah. You women know exactly what I'm talking about. There comes a point, whether it's a garden project, whether it's a house project, whether it's a financial project, where you get to the point where you cannot go back. The only way is forward. 
Anybody identify with that? Yeah, the only way, the point of no return. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus has invested all he is in you. The cross was the point of no return. The point of no return. The way I phrase it is he cannot uncross himself. You know what I mean? He can't uncrucify himself. He can't go back. When he made that decision about you, he knew everything about you. He knew the amount of times you would fail. He knew the amount of times you would disappoint. He knew all of that. And yet he still went to the cross and he went to the point of no return. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's where we stand this morning. Do you know, I am so grateful. I am so, so grateful that God does not get fed up with me. Because I tell you something, I get fed up with me. I really do. But God has been too long involved with you and he's invested too much to simply wash his hands of you. So my anchor this morning is that God is faithful beyond my performance. Which is such a relief. That my salvation is not rooted in me ticking every box, getting it all right all the time. Although I strive to walk with Jesus faithfully. My salvation is rooted in his loyalty and his commitment to me. And I don't know about you, but that makes me strong this morning. I feel strong. God has been too long involved with you. He's invested too much to simply wash his hands of you. So I don't know how you're feeling this morning. Maybe turmoil, angst about being there again. I want to tell you that Jesus is for you. And Jesus is with you. Hallelujah. That's first point. It's not bad, is it, for timing? My second point is this. When we try to be right with God on our own by pursuing our own interests, we always end up going in the opposite direction. And like the Israelites, if we do it, we can end up being distant from God and thick-skinned towards him. The scripture talks about having a form of religion but denying its power. And it is possible to have a form of faith but actually deny the power of real faith that comes from Jesus. Now, I'm really good at this because I am a self-help kind of fix-it person. I like to fix everything that's wrong all the time. It sends me into turmoil. And I can be very quick to jump into a situation, meet every challenge with my own ingenuity, my own strength, and my own strategy. And it can make me feel virtuous and strong, but in actual fact, what I'm doing is I'm doing things in my own strength, and I'm walking away from my strength being in Jesus. And when I was reading the passage, and I was asking God how to apply it to me, I realized that I need to grow in my dependence and trust in Jesus. I have had great angst about all that's been going on in Ukraine. To the point where it has left me in great turmoil. And you know when you're shouting at the TV? Well, why don't you do that? Come on, why aren't we doing this? You know that? That's how I am. But I realize all the time I take these things on and all the time I'm trying to work things in my own strength and I'm trying to do things with my own understanding, what I'm saying is is I'm not going to depend and trust in Jesus. 
And I am learning, I am learning that my dependence and trust has to be in him. I cannot fix the problems of the world. I can't even fix my own problems. Never mind the problems of the world. Never mind your problems. Never mind any... I can't do it. I can't do it. I need to have dependence and trust in Jesus. When I try to do things in my own strength and in my own strategy and in my own wisdom... To the onlooker, it could look really godly. But in the eyes of God, I'm far away from him. I'm not resting in him. So my challenge for my second point is rather than pursuing my interests, I need to allow God to pursue his interest in me. Rather than pursuing what I think it should be like and what I think should happen and how I think it should end and the conclusions that I think it should have, what I need to do is say, Father God, you pursue your interests in me. What do you want to do in my life? What do you want to take away from my life in order that I can be and do all that you want me to be and do? That's my second point. I've glossed over these two because this is my third point that I'm really excited about. You probably all know it anyway, but I'm going to share it. My last point is when the scripture here talks about being grafted in. I had no idea what this meant in reality. So it talks about this olive tree, this olive tree that is a beautiful kind of olive tree, an orchard type olive tree, kind that has been cared for and nurtured. It's come from the root of the tree, growing beautifully in an orchard. And Paul begins to describe that for the Jews, they were pruned off from that tree. And I was thinking, well, why was that? Asking myself the question. And then you, there was this wild shoot, which I realized was us. And I love that term, that we're the wild shoot. The wild shoot, the weird ones, the unusual ones, the ones that weren't part of that original plan, have been grafted in to this root. Now, when I've heard this, I've already imagined it a bit like Lego blocks being put together. That's what grafting looks like. Any of you gardeners? Any of you gardeners? Well, keep your hands down because I'm talking about it now. I'm just saying. So I wanted to understand what Paul was saying when he was saying that there was this lovely orchard-style olive tree that had had some of his branches pruned off and then this... Weird lot had been grafted in. And what it actually means, it's it's amazing. So I looked up what it means to graft. And it does mean to work, but not in this context. It's a technique that joins two plants together. Are you wowed by that yet? Oh, let's read on. It says this, usually a wound is created on the root plant. Oh, I started to get excited. (laughs) Technique of joining two plants together. A wound is created on the root plant. And the wild shoot, the weird shoot, the unnatural shoot is put into, it's inserted into the wound so that each plant and its tissues grow together. Well, are you beginning to see why I'm getting a little bit excited? It's not Lego bricks stuck together. It's not me being shoved up against something like that in the hope of something happening. There is a root, a holy root, a God-planted, God-tended holy root that has been wounded. 
Can you see where this is going? Has been wounded. And that weird and wonderful unnatural shoot that shouldn't belong there, shouldn't belong in that orchard, is taken and placed inside the wound of the root. Is, why aren't we getting excited? You're a bit overwhelmed, aren't you? I can tell. Inserted into the wound so that each plant's tissues can grow together. Listen to this. The grafted in shoot, the unusual, the weird, all of those things I'm applying to me, will stop growing true to its type. Oh my goodness. It stops growing. It stops growing in that weird and wonderful, wacky way out way that it's doing um, the unnatural thing. It begins to take on the nature of the new root where it has been inserted into the wound. Oh, are you with me? The root stock begins to contribute its own unique traits into that weird and wonderful shoot. It improves its hardiness. It makes it more hardy. It improves yield. Oh, and listen to this. It improves its endurance to extremes. That isn't that what we need? Improves its hardiness, makes it stronger, makes it capable of endurance, improves its yield, its fruit is better, its fruit is bigger, its fruit is more tasty, and it improves its endurance to extremes. You know, you know that kind of emotional thing that we go to from one to the other? Or is it, I think it must just be me. That swing that we do from one extreme to the other this plant, when rooted into this God-tended, God-planted root, will, in, will be, it will have its endurance capability improved. It even helps with disease resistance. That's what grafting means. That's what it means. It even helps with disease resistance. That's what it means. And you and I have been grafted into the root. We know that a wound was created, don't we? The Bible talks about the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. There was a wound created in this root and you and I have been grafted into this root. We are getting our life source from this God-tended, God-planted root, which is Jesus. Amen. Amen. And when we are rooted in him, we can become more hardy. We're knocked down every, we're not knocked down every five minutes. We improve in yield. We improve in endurance. And we are even disease resistant. Yes. Hallelujah. And as I was thinking about that, I remembered in John chapter 20, verse 25, remember doubting Thomas? He said to Jesus, unless... I see the nail marks in your hands and put my finger where his nails have been and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He needed to be able to see the wounds and put his hand into the wounds of Jesus and into the side of Jesus. And that's when he would believe. That wound was cut for you so that you would be grafted in. So that all the benefits of the root would draw life up into you and be yours. 
Now, you might ask the question. How do I know whether I'm grafted in or not? So it's not a guessing game. The Bible makes it very, very clear. It's not a guessing game. We are not supposed to wake up every morning and think to ourselves, am I grafted in this morning or am I not? Have I somehow... No, it says, everything comes down to believing. The Bible tells us that all things are possible for anyone who believes. That's what the Bible says. It says that we are filled with hope and joy in our believing. Stay with me. It says, blessed are those who have not seen and and yet who have believed in Jesus. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And my most favorite, which you all know, is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed, let's say that bit again, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Let's say it now with more confidence because it trips up the song. It's the one that we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you don't have to tick every box or everything and get it all right. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in that moment, you are grafted in and you begin to draw your life source from the root, which is Jesus himself. I don't know about you, but that just makes me so full of joy this morning. That's the connection. That's all it takes is just believing in Jesus. When, you, when I first became a Christian, oh my goodness, for years afterwards, same old, same old stuff. Am I? Am I? Am I? Insecurity of not knowing. But I am. I'm grafted in because of my belief in Jesus. That's the connection. So imagine if believing connects us. What do you think could disconnect us? Sorry? Yep. Disbelief or what do we call it? Unbelief. Unbelief can create a disconnect between us and our source of life. About uh, six weeks ago, I told this story to some friends a few days ago, but about six or seven weeks ago, probably a bit longer, I bought a clematis from uh, Morrison's. You can get them for two pounds. Just letting you know. Um, and I bought a lovely one, and it had like two stalks like this, and I carried it home thinking, I've never, I've never uh, grown clematis before, I'm going to have a go. So I carried it really carefully and took a lot of time and dug it in and dug it deep, put it up against a trellis. And, and for a few weeks, every day, I would go out and look at it, and I'd come back and report to whoever wanted to know. Um, I just assumed they wanted to know. I'd say, oh, it's grown again, and it's up the trellis. And Anyway, this one particular day, I'd been out all day. I was very tired. I'm, you'll see why I'm telling you I was very tired, and it had been a really tough day. And yeah, uh, I came home in the evening, and um, Nick had been doing some stuff in the garden, which I was really pleased about for a moment. And, uh, and then he said, um, and then he said uh, I don't think I've killed it. <laughs> what do you mean, you don't think you've killed it? He said, I don't think I've killed it. He said, I was raking, and I think I might have caught a little bit of the twig off. But when it happened, it was fine. I went, and the leaves were all lovely. He said, but I've just gone back, and all the leaves have drooped. 
I'd like to say that I was really spiritual and godly, and but said, oh, never mind, dear. Um, but I'd had a long day, and I, it was it had been stressful. So I, in my martyrish way, I put his shoes on for greater effect, because you can stomp louder in bigger shoes, and stomped up the garden, looked at the branch, went like that, picked it up, this dead thing wilted, walked in my self-righteous way across the garden, back to him, and see, it's dead. <laughs> And then Frifect opened the bin with a big whoosh, slammed it in, whacked the bin down and flounced off. Um, I, I have apologised. I have apologised. The point that I tell, the reason why I tell you this story is not to make you laugh or for, for you to judge me in any way. We all have our weaknesses. Mine is that. But it's to say that any disconnect that there is between a plant and his root will ultimately lead to death. It ultimately leads to death. We might not realise it immediately, because the leaves don't just droop immediately. So when the point of disconnect came with that clematis, Nick didn't realise that what he'd actually done was killed it. It wasn't until half an hour later, an hour later, I got home and I looked at it and it was definitely dead. And my challenge for me was, if belief is what grafts me in, what does it take for me to be disconnected with God? What does it take? Because I can't assume. I can't live as if it doesn't matter. I need to make sure that I keep my connection. I am connected to that root that has been wounded for me. I've been grafted in. Are you with me? Unbelief is not the same as doubt. We're not talking about those moments when we think, oh, I, don't, I can't see what God is doing in all of this. But what I do know, for me personally, I'm speaking about me this morning, is that if I feed my doubts and I feed my insecurities and I feed those things that are weak in me, mark my words, my faith begins to starve and it begins to have an effect on my spirit. Am I the only one? I am very good at feeding my doubt. It is a natural gift that I've got. Very good at feeding doubt in my life, questioning. And if I keep doing that and I don't nurture my connectedness to Jesus, eventually my spirit will begin to die. And you know what? The enemy doesn't come in a right red suit with a big forked tail. He doesn't. He just comes with a little... Tries to draw us away from our root, from our connection. Feed your doubts and your faith will starve. Feed your faith and your doubts will starve. I didn't make that up, by the way. I, can't, I, I don't know who did, but it's very good. I could say it was me, but then I'd be lying. Feed your faith. The way we stay connected is not by being better or doing better or longer prayers or longer Bible studies or longer this or longer that. We feed, feed your faith. Get connected. I am so grateful for MCF because there are as many ways to get connected into as there are people. So many ways to stay connected to God's word, to God's people, to God's presence. So many ways. All these testimonies that come up, they just feed my spirit. I just get so excited. If God can do it for that person, he can do it for me. Feed your faith from the life giving root and I'm almost finished that's how we are grafted in I realized that over the years when I was younger and I heard about pruning it used to make me really nervous 
that God would prune my life. Um, and I used to worry that I'd wake up one morning and find my arm had been chopped off, like a spirit, spirit not my real arm, obviously, but I used to imagine that God would do something in my life that would, and chop me right back. But as I was reading this today, I can see that God's clear intention for us is that we would grow. All of this that he talks about is order that you and I would grow and be strong and resilient and disease-free, producing vibrant fruit. And anything that's disconnected, I actually want him, I need him to cut it off because dead wood is, dead wood is hard to carry around. It's hard to carry around. So actually, when God says he's pruning, and he's pruning us, the way I can avoid it is to remain connected to him. And if I have dead wood, I need to ask the Holy Spirit to deal with that in me. In me. I don't need to carry it around. I want to remain green and flexible and free and full of the life of the Spirit of God. Now, I realize that I've, I've rushed it through this morning. And I don't quite know how to finish. Except I do want to say that the way that we survive being, by being grafted in, there are people that are attached to church or attached to church activities or attached to... It's not the same as believing in Jesus for your salvation. We can be attached and not grafted in. And what keeps us alive in our spirit is not by being attached to something, but by being fully grafted into Jesus, recognizing that he was wounded, wounded in order that we would be able to receive full life in him. Amen. Amen.